You all right over there? Yes, I am. I know you have yes. a you have a microphone that's spinning around like a turnstile. <laughs> Today we're talking about car buying, the whole process of buying cars and what it looks like now, our experiences with it, and what it might look like in the future. We're going to talk about speeding tickets. This was we mentioned in the last episode. We wanted to talk about speeding tickets and. Is there a fair way to assess a speeding ticket based on income? Um, kids' birthday parties. We were going to share a little bit of our experiences as kids at birthday parties. That's a topic you wanted to discuss, so I'm interested to hear more about your take. And we'll finish up with a weird news story. Sounds pretty good. I think we've got a, a action-packed agenda here. Yeah, so generally, when in our sort of pre-chat, we were discussing the whole things somewhat returning to normal we've both attended a couple of blue jay games in the last couple of weeks and you you went to the to the game what a week ago and said you your experiences there you had some comments about your experience regarding social distancing so why don't you talk about that for a sec exactly yeah we've talked quite a bit about things returning to normal and being able to you know resume activities that we have enjoyed uh, pre-COVID, and both of us being huge baseball fans, uh, it certainly has been nice to be able to go back and see live baseball, something that seemed so so distant this time last year. Uh, I was at last Saturday's game, and I will say this. The one thing that struck me about attending the game in person was the lack of social distancing. Like, it was great to be there. It was great to be part of the, the fan experience and and. Certainly, I want to go back to more games, if possible. But with everything that going on with all of the safety protocols and, you know, everything you hear about making sure you adhere to proper social distancing measures, there was a complete lack of it when I was at the Rogers Center. And you've been to a few games yourself, and I'm sure you've probably experienced the same thing. So just kind of wanted to, to kick that off and get your thoughts on that. Just uh, kind of what we were talking about with the previous episode with, you know, the whole COVID vaccines and everything. And in the latest news is the fact that um, beginning, I believe the next Blue Jays homestand, or I think it's September 13th. September 13th yeah. That you now have to have uh, proof of vaccination to be able to enter yes. the, the stadium. So there we go already. We are, there's, there's your proof in the pudding that, COVID vaccine passports are, are here and they're, they're a very real thing. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was kind of a, a bit of a weird experience, just the, the lack of social distancing and that the seats that we are in, there is people all around us. There is no empty seats around yeah. yet a couple rows over, well, it's a couple aisles over maybe five, six, seven aisles over, um, most of the seats there were were socially distanced. There were many large sections of of the stadium where people were appropriately spread out, uh, which I thought just was very peculiar as to how they've done that. Yeah, I agree. And I've heard a few theories on that. I've heard that they want the, on TV for the it not to look like it's a sparse crowd, but in a way they've somewhat shone a light on things because... There's been a lot of comments, a lot of Twitter action, a lot of social media action around the fact that it's actually shining a light on, on the number of people that aren't wearing masks 
on TV. So they're getting some bad press from that. And I think that's what led to this change in protocols. Now, it is worth noting that there have been no cases of COVID spread linked to Blue Jay games at this point. But at the moment, you only need to wear a mask if you're eating or drinking. Well, if you put a drink in your cup holder, then conceivably you may be able to sit there the whole game and never have your mask on. So it's a bit odd. Um, my one, one of our children is under 12 and can't be vaccinated. So my wife has said she's not comfortable bringing our daughter to a game unless we're in the socially distanced area, which is, uh, you know, limiting in a sense. But, um, I think the double vaccination thing might, might put her more at ease, but I haven't had that conversation with her. You raise a good point about kids under the age of 12. My my son under the age of 12, so therefore not vaccinated. With him there, yeah, I was a little uneasy with him being in that large group of people as well. And and we eventually moved over. I think it was maybe the second or third inning. We, we did move over um, down a little bit to the, the socially distant seats. And yeah, it was just, it was a better experience just being in those seats and just sort of not having people over top of you. Um, it's actually not a bad way to watch a game where you don't have people in front of you, beside you, or behind you. Yeah, yeah, I actually preferred that. Yeah, yeah, not not having a ton of people around you, especially on a hot summer day when you know you want some room to spread out, or you want to be able to sit in the shade. You know, choose where your seat is. Um, so yeah, it was just again just a weird experience. It's just very sort of contradictory with everything you've been. I guess everything we've been sort of brainwashed to believe in the in the media right now. Um, yeah, it was just, it was, it was a bit odd and it, it kind of caught me by surprise. Okay. So I wanted to talk about the whole process of buying a car and I, I bought three or four cars, I guess, since I was in the, in the, at the age that I could drive. And since being able to drive, I've been, uh, I've had three or four buying experiences and I, what I wanted to discuss today was in general, how do you feel about the traditional way of purchasing a car, which is to walk into a dealership and talk to a salesperson and they show you the car and you can ask your questions? Um, however, these days there's new options that are coming around, like online car purchasing is starting to become something that is possible now to do. I think Tesla, for example, doesn't have even have car dealerships. Like you, you arrange appointments and you meet somebody and then you go for a test drive, but a traditional like dealership experience, I don't believe Tesla, you, you, when you purchase a Tesla, that's not the normal experience. So in general, let me start off by asking in general, do you find the car buying experience a pleasurable experience? I wouldn't call it quote-unquote, pleasurable experience, but I don't find it an unpleasurable experience. And let me explain. Okay, so, and first, like getting a new car is cool. It's exciting, a brand new car, or even a used car. It's still a new car to you. And so let's let's put aside the excitement around buying a car in terms of, yeah, we're going to get a new car. I'm speaking specifically to the, when you're ready to start getting serious and start looking around to buy the car. Yeah, I actually don't mind the process. Um, I guess that the last time we purchased a vehicle was probably maybe four years ago, I guess. Um, 
yeah, and, and in terms of, of the shopping experience, I'm perhaps a traditionalist in that I go around to the, the various dealerships and meet with the salespeople and take it on, on test drives, that type of thing. And, you know, when we were purchasing our, our most recent vehicle, we, we had an idea as to what we wanted, but it wasn't like there was a specific vehicle that we had to have. Um you know, you mentioned about Tesla. I think if you're going, if you're looking to buy a Tesla, you're pretty determined or you, you, it's the kind of vehicle that you have in your mind that that's something that you have a keen interest in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not going to buy a Tesla versus buying like a Chevy Sprint or something like that. Um, but in my experiences have been pretty good. Um, I've been fortunate that I've, I've dealt with some decent salespeople. And I think the salespeople the salesperson that you deal with can really make or break that experience. And the last two car purchases I've dealt with, you know, pretty decent um, salespeople. In the past, we have gone, we have met with salespeople that, yeah, you just don't connect with or, or people that just kind of turn you off. And, and having, having the wrong salesperson, I can definitely see how that could put a, a bad taste in someone's mouth or, or make it, you know, an unenjoyable experience. You know, everyone complains that, you know, when they walk out of the car dealership, they always feel like they got ripped off. It shouldn't always have to be that way. Um, I like to think that I haven't, I've never felt like I've been ripped off. Um, everyone wants a, wants a good deal when they buy a car, but at the end of the day, purchasing a car, it's never going to be a, a sound financial decision. You're always going to, lose money one way or another because of it's something that's going to depreciate in value. So you need to kind of put that in your mind, knowing that, yeah, you're going to pay more money than what you really want. Um, it's hard to find a, a good deal on a vehicle. So, Well, people come in now, though, so much more educated when you can search online and look at what prices are for cars. But, I mean, my experience, I've never had too many, maybe... Have I ever had a negative experience purchasing a car? I, I, I've definitely had that like slick salesman sort of thing going on where, what's it going to take to put you in a car today, sir? Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I can't stand that. Exactly. Yeah. No, I, and I've, I feel like I've as soon as I people. pull, if I park, get it, if, as soon as I park my car and I get out, I feel all of a sudden I've tripped all the radar within the dealership that I'm, I've been noticed as soon as I've pulled into the parking lot and that eyes are on me, and that I can start walking, and I can already feel out of the corner of my eyes. I can see the activity inside the dealership, and then they, and then one person will emerge. I guess whoever's turn it is, or you know, the top sales guy, or however these things work. I, I just feel like I'm being preyed upon when I'm in a car dealership. Exactly. Yeah. There's that stigma of, of, you know, the, the slick car salesman. And I would never buy a car from someone like that anyway. Um, in many years ago, my wife and I went for a test drive once and we had asked the, the salesperson in terms of pricing of the vehicles. And I think his exact words were, I will tell you about the price once we've done the test drive. Right, you so know, he's he, going to tell you how it's going to work. Yeah, he wants you to drive the vehicle first, and then he's going to try to sell you on it. It's like, no, come on, that's just playing stupid games. That that immediately turned me off. I'm like, you know, I don't, 
I think as soon as we finished the test drive, I'm like, all right, well, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, about that price. Yeah. But you know what, though? I have had good experiences, as I mentioned before. Um, I've bought a couple of Hyundai vehicles in the past, and there was a salesperson that, that we've dealt with, and he was excellent. Very nice person to deal with. And we actually went back to him a second time. We actually sought him out you know, when we were upgrading our, our vehicle a couple of years later. Um, so when you have a salesperson that you enjoy dealing with, you want to, you want to use that person and give them referrals, uh, because yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it is, it's a good thing when you can finally find someone that, that you're comfortable having that business transaction with. I think the thing that, that kind of is a bit irritating is when, you know, no matter how good your salesperson is, when when you have to get the, uh, I guess, the, the top sales manager, like they disappear into the office. And, yeah. Yeah, let, let me see what I can do. I'll, I'll, I'll be back. And, yes, I was going to say, it's of, all smiles and chuckles until it's time to actually make the deal. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, I've got to go talk to my business manager. Now, does Hyundai have a... It's the price is the price, or is there room for negotiation? Uh, there's still room for negotiation. And yeah, especially if it's like a demo vehicle, they can throw in like free oil changes or free tinted windows or something like that. So yeah, there's always room for negotiation on something. But yeah, it's the the thing that does get tiring is the fact that, you know, at some point someone disappears into an office or a little room somewhere and comes back with like either good news or bad news as to whether or not we can give you the price that you want or we can, you know, give you X number of oil changes or something like that. It's just, it's... Yeah, I just feel like you're kind of being nickel and dimed. So my, let me tell you about my first car buying experience. I, I was in a Toyota dealership here in Toronto, and I took my dad with me. I, I was probably 20 at the time, and I took my dad with me, and I'd already seen the car and identified that I wanted this car, and now it was time to you know start talking about pricing and, and purchasing the car. And I remember the lady... The sales lady, I, I, you know, I was, I didn't know anything at the time, and this was twenty years ago. So you, you had didn't really have the same resources that you have now, like with the internet. Well, hold on, you're forty nine years old. Twenty nine years ago, let's get that right. God, was it? <laughs> it was a nineteen ninety six Toyota Corolla. All right, then I guess you would have been about twenty four. Okay, so I was a bit older. Now I. I had looked, I guess, the, I think the price was $15,000. That just rings a bell for me. And I and I've, I think I just figured oh, I'll, I'll ask for like 12000 or something. I just put the number out. And I remember the salesperson saying to me, if I were to take that deal into my manager's office, I would get laughed out of the room. And, and to me, it was just like, oh, God, well, that, that's horrible. Like, you know, looking back on it, I would just say, well, Go for it. I don't care if you get laughed out of the room. Um, but that was like one of the techniques, right? I mean, I bet you that phrase had been echoed inside of those dealership walls twice, three times that week, you know? Yeah, especially being, you know, 23, 24 years old, however you were, being able to, to school a young guy like that to say, you know, shame you into thinking that you were going to try to get a deal or take advantage of a, a seasoned salesman. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's stuff like that that kind of puts you off for sure. So the the reason now the last two car purchases that I've had have not involved. First of all, the the car I bought before the one we have now, I didn't even take it for a test drive. I we had a Honda 
Honda Odyssey van, and I knew it was the best of the minivans. And I hired an auto broker to purchase to, that I used to find me the best deal. And so what they do is you charge you they charge a fee. I think it's about three hundred dollars or so. And you, you, they will go out. You have to give them the vehicle you want. You can't just say, hi, I want to buy a car, and then they start shopping. They need to know specifically what model you want. Um, there's a freaking bee flying around here. Um, you have to know what model you want, and they go out and scour the market to find it. And I would say best money I could have ever spent. Yeah, that does sound like a good idea. I haven't used one myself, but from what you've said and I know a few other people that have used an auto broker and they've said good things it's great yeah as you said you have to have a little bit of an idea as to what you want but like I knew roughly what I was going to be what I would have had to pay just from my research and she she was able to get it down to two dealerships and not only was able I think the dealership I bought it from was like two hours from Toronto and they actually shipped it to the dealership closest to me and I knew that I got the best deal I could have got. And I didn't have to get involved in any negotiations with anybody, any, you know, showmanship or, or sales techniques or anything like that. And then when we bought our last car, I, I got the same company to source the vehicle, the vehicle we have now. Same thing. I didn't have to deal with any dickering of price or anything like that. And that, to me, was was well worth it. Yeah, I'll say that was probably well worth the three hundred dollars, whatever it is. Yeah. So that that now what I do what I do want to talk about is I believe that the future of car buying will be drastically different. It's already changing, but I believe dealerships as we know them today will not exist in the next. I I don't think dealerships will even be around within the next ten years. What do you think? I'm going to say no on that. I think there are, there will always be a place for dealerships. Um, I agree with you in the sense that the 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 car buying experience w- will definitely change. I think you will see more people likely using brokers. Um, there will be more online shopping. I, I think, but I think there'll always be a need for 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 dealerships because at the end of the day, there's still people that just want to shop and have no idea what they want to buy. They just want to go around, test drive a bunch of vehicles, take a look. There may be, may not be as much of a need for dealerships in the sense that maybe we don't need, you know, let's say a thousand car dealerships in the city of Toronto. There may only be six or 700 car dealerships. I'm not just throwing out numbers here. I, I don't know what the exact numbers are. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that ultimately there might be a reduction in car dealerships because of the fact that people are exploring alternate means, and that's just the way of the, the future. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the traditional car dealership, there'll always be a need for that. I think people will always – there'll be enough of an interest, certainly beyond 10 years. Who knows, you know, 50 years from now – yeah, and geez, 50 years from now, we could be all be driving self-driving vehicles. So, Well, that's the other thing. Yeah. That is an important comment because I think that in the next 10 years, most, most if not all, vehicles will be self-driving. Um, I picture having, you will go, you will search, go on the internet, you will do all your research, you will push submit, 
and a car will be driven to your home. You'll get in it. Maybe it's self-driving. I don't know. You'll get in it. You'll drive it around. And then the dealer, whoever that is, will take it back to the dealership. And then you can do the same for the next car, the next car. Gone will be the day. I'm making this prediction right now. Two thousand. What is it? 2021. By 2030, dealerships will not exist. That's my bold statement. By 2030... Yep, so they're less, gone. less than 10 years from now. Yeah, so, okay, 2031, okay, so, they're uh, gone. Le- yes, so let's mark this day. So in nine years from now, when you and I are doing our 800th podcast, <laughs> 800th episode, if we've talked about this, we can then bring this up as a topic to say, okay, where are we at with that prediction? <laughs> well, let's check in on it five years from now and, and see where we're at with it. Yeah, um, future of car buying, changing. I, I want to cha- share, a f- or will be dr- completely different. Now, I want to share a few stats before we move on. So, I got this from a, a website called V12 Data, and there's a number of statistics I found interesting here about the car buying experience. It says 80%, 87% of Americans dislike something about car shopping at dealerships, and 61% feel they're taken advantage of while they're there. 52% of car shoppers feel anxious or uncomfortable at dealerships. Millennials lead the pack in their dislike with 56% 56 saying they'd rather clean their homes than negotiate with a car dealer. Gen Xers aren't fans either. Faced with alternatives, 24% say they'd rather have a root canal than get into car negotiation. Among millennial women, 62% feel pressured to buy right away, and 49% said they feel tricked into buying features they didn't need. I think sometimes the car buying experience might be a little different when you're buying a used vehicle, because you're not really negotiating features on the vehicle. It's what you see is what you get in terms of a particular car that you're, you're buying. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there there's a lot of factors to consider, you know, when you're when you're talking about you know, negotiations and and your interactions with the various salesmen and the and the, the sales manager and all those people. Um like for me, my last vehicle was was a used vehicle. And we did a lot of research. We went on autotrader.com, which is a great website that allows you to really get an idea as to what the range of the vehicle in terms of pricing, um, that that's a that's a good way to educate yourself so that you don't feel that you're getting ripped off. So that when you see a price, you know that okay, this is a good one. Let's go for it. And I, yeah, I, you're right in the sense that already a lot has changed with car buying. In that we as consumers, I think, are more educated people. I think probably do a lot more research than what they did maybe 10, 20 years oh, ago when there may not have been as much information available to them. So I'd hate to be a car dealer right now. Actually, we have a mutual friend who's a car dealer and a car, car they call them brand specialists. Yes. That's also something that's changed. You no longer see salesperson mm-hmm. on the business cards of these guys or women. It'll be brand specialist or something to that effect. All right. Well, I'm still sticking to my bold prediction. We'll check in in five years, see how I'm doing. Okay, let's do it. It'll be drastically different. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Pace Painting. Pace Painting, serving all your painting needs, whether commercial or residential, 
Reach Pace Painting at paintwithpace at gmail.com or via their Facebook page, Pace Painting Inc. Or call Peter at 289-356-7744. Paint with Pace. We just made the we just made the um, hand signal from our to our producer for more beer. Our lovely producer, your wife, is yes. going to grab us some more beers. And, and we, we should point out that we are this is another backyard recording. Yep. And you kindly well, you the neighbor next door you asked if he could refrain from doing every anything or anything in his backyard while we recorded this important episode. Exactly, because I think our, our listeners will recall from uh, a couple of months prior some of your um, interesting stories about with with your neighbor and her uh, unrealistic demands as to times in which you were allowed and not allowed in, into your backyard. So, yep, um, your, your neighbor was pretty uh, pretty reasonable. Like, yeah, we well, just said just don't use your please don't use your leaf blower yeah no leaf blowers no chainsaws no nothing like that for the next uh you know 45 minutes okay we're moving on to our next topic speeding tickets we the reason this topic came up was because i've received our family has received two or three tickets now in the past couple of months from these speed cameras that uh are on a, a particular street nearby. It got me thinking. So the, it's a 50 kilometer zone, this the particular stretch. And that's where they're putting a lot of these speed cameras in place or in these like 50, 40 zones, school zones, things like that. And so if you go, I think more than 10 kilometers over the speeding limit, which is not a lot really when it comes to how fast that feels, that difference. So you do really have to pay attention. But I got to thinking, okay, so every time we get dinged with one of these tickets, it's about $98 or something like that, which is, you know, a bit of a kick in the pants. It's like, it's it's enough to not want to get another one. But I started thinking that for somebody that makes, I don't know, 500K a year or a million dollars a year, what matter does, does this have in their minds um, to get a, a ticket for $98. And I'll extend that out to a speeding ticket as well. If you get a speeding ticket and it's $300, to somebody who, who makes a lot of money or is you know independently wealthy or whatever, how much do they really care about getting a, a $300 fine versus some people who maybe don't make a lot of money, that $300 is is an extremely high amount of money that could be crippling in a lot of ways. So what I wanted to talk about was, is there a way to balance out these fines? Because it means $100 means something different to somebody who makes $35,000 a year versus somebody who makes $200,000 a year. Well, in the Canadian system, well, certainly here in Ontario... Um, I think it already is balanced out in the sense that, okay, let's say you get, you know, a $50 speeding fine. Yeah, $50 is not a heck of a lot of money, but I would never take that ticket lightly. I would never just say, ah, who cares? It's only $50. I would be more, I'm more concerned about my driving record in the sense that, you know, it's balanced out by way of your insurance premiums. So if I have... Yeah, let's say, for argument's sake, that 10 kilometers over the speed limit, 
or let's say like minor tickets. Uh, for argument's sake, let's say I'm only paying fifty dollars. I don't care about the fifty dollars. I'm more concerned about losing points on my driving record and then end up paying exorbitant premiums come the next insurance renewal. Okay, so that's so, a disincentive. That's an incentive not to to get more speeding tickets. Yeah. However, is it fair? Is it fair for you to get a a fine for fifty dollars, and somebody who makes half the income you make get a fine for fifty dollars, or somebody who makes double the income you make gets a fine for fifty dollars? Do you I see where I'm going with that? I, I I do, but I still think it's it's a fair system in that nobody wants to get a speeding ticket. You know, no, no, nobody no, wants to get nobody, a ticket. A lot of people just, want to speed. Yeah, but nobody just you know cavalierly well. Nobody is that cavalier about it or, or just completely dismisses a speeding ticket in the sense that, oh, geez, yeah, who cares? No matter, even if the speeding ticket was $5, I would still be kind of disappointed in myself thinking, ah, damn, you know, another speeding ticket. Because, you know, it's it's reflection of your own driving and, and the way in which you, you handle your vehicle. Um, yeah, I, I think there's enough of a of a of a disincentive within Ontario itself that I, I think in some ways the amount that they charge you is, is kind of secondary. Um, so yeah, your argument about if you make more money, should you pay more? I don't, I don't think that's going to be a deterrent. I don't think that's going to make any difference as to whether or not people speed. I, I, I don't see how that would, would change any, all right. Outcome. So move move away the demerit system, because there are some times when you have like remember when they had a photo radar on the on the street. Apparently that didn't impact your driving record. In fact, it was associated with the vehicle, not the driver. Which happens in the case of these speeding tickets that the um, the the cameras that nailed us a couple times. It actually doesn't care who the driver is. It it just looks at the car. So let me go back to it. if remove the demerit system from it, then what? Okay, maybe maybe you could then make that argument um, because so that's yeah, the way things are going. More okay. is is so if, is vehicle gets nailed, not driver. Yeah, if if it had no bearing on my insurance whatsoever, a twenty dollar fine versus a hundred dollar fine or a five hundred dollar fine. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously, if if I was to get a five hundred dollar fine, yeah, I would definitely take notice. I'd be pretty upset with myself if I was to uh, put myself in a position where I got that hefty of of a fine. So, it, yeah, okay, I I see where you're coming from in the sense that, um, yes, it should be relatable to um to what you make. However, I I I still don't know if that would make any difference in terms of reducing uh, potential violations. I, right, well, I, don't, I don't know if that would you know, make any changes to overall public safety. Okay, let me share with you some statistics. So in Finland, they have what's called the day fine system. And it's calculated, the speeding fines are linked to salary. So the it's calculated on the basis of an offender's daily disposable income, which is generally their daily salary divided by two. The more a driver is over the speed limit, the greater number of day fines they will receive. 
This has led to headline-grabbing fines when wealthy drivers have been caught driving fast. So, in 2002, Ansi Vajoki, former director of Nokia, was ordered to pay a fine of 116,000 euros for after being caught driving 75 kilometers in a 50-kilometer zone on his motorbike. And another guy, Finnish businessman Rima Kusla, in 2015 was fined $62,000 for driving 22 kilometers over the 50-kilometer speed limit. So, if these guys get a fine for $100,000, I think that's going to make a difference than if they get a fine for $500 in terms of their desire to follow the speeding limit. Because I think, you take guys like Dave Letterman, he was notorious for speeding on his way into New York City from Connecticut. And basically, he just took the driving ticket and tossed it in the back seat. He didn't care. I guess so. I, I guess in, in terms of certain individuals, maybe it does make a difference. I think that that would be a very, very small minority of, of people. I think the probably like 95% of, of people that would be subjected to that would be within a f- a fairly similar income bracket. I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of um, curious as to how they determine that. So when, when you get a ticket, how do you know how much you pay? Like how does, when does that calculation take into effect? Yeah. It must somehow be linked to, you must have to somewhere put your, your salary into your driving information somewhere, or you, there must be some place where they know what your income is. I don't know how, but, that that's the only way it could be possible. Yeah, yeah, that would be interesting as to to how that how that determination for for income is is calculated. If they have, you know, double check your your latest uh, T four like your 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 tax statement. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm sure there's a system in place. We we're not sure how, but um, yeah, obviously if I'm mean, as I don't know. Is it working in Finland? Like, is it making any difference to public safety or is it reduced accidents, collisions, that type of thing? That is a very good question. Um, this article doesn't indicate that it makes made a different in f- difference in Finland. Um, they do say that 1.25 million road traffic deaths occur every year. I think this is globally number one cause of death among those aged 15 to 29 years of age. Um, Just we'll finish up, but Switzerland uses a similar system, currently holds the world record for a speeding ticket. It was handed to a Swedish motorist in 2010 who was caught driving at 290 kilometers an hour. He was fined 3,600 Swiss francs per day for 300 days, around $1 million. But how much was he over? He was going 290 kilometers? 290 kilometers. So wow. presumably, okay. I'm, I think Sweden has, you know, they obviously have have road li- speed <laughs> limits. Let's say if we compare it to here, which is 100 kilometers on most of the major highways, this guy was <laughs> going three times the speed limit. Yeah, but keep in mind that in places, well, certainly here in Ontario, if someone was going 290 kilometers an hour, they would probably probably lose their license. Yeah. You know, you're if you have extreme cases where yeah, that'd be reckless driving. Yeah, where it's considered to be um, you know road racing, then yes, your 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 license would probably be taken away from you. So yeah, that that's a pretty good incentive right then and there. Well, here's a good point. So the comment you made or were alluding to earlier is 
would this reduce traffic? Would this reduce speeding? Would it reduce accidents? Is there a, you know, a, a problem out there right now with speeding that the current system isn't good enough? We don't have those statistics, but perhaps if it was flawed and it wasn't working well enough, then they do need to look at options like this. Yeah, I think it takes a, a deeper look into the stats. It, it's hard to say. Like, it, we don't have the stats in front of us. If if Finland and Switzerland and places like that can, can show stats that say, okay, uh, traffic collisions have been reduced by 20%, then, okay, maybe we can have that conversation. Maybe that's something that, that's worth exploring. Um, you know, w- without having those stats in front of me, I, I have a tough time believing that would make a huge difference in overall traffic safety. Um, as, as I've stated before, I think there's enough, um, there's enough measures in place, certainly here in Ontario, with, you know, the demerit point system, in that I think 99% of, of drivers are certainly not seeking to get tickets or, or, you know, if they get a ticket, it's, it's purely by accident or, or just a, a momentary, um, you know, lapse in judgment or, or, or carelessness. Um, so yeah, I think that the demerit point system is, is an effective system. It certainly is for me. As I said, I, I'm as a driver. Yeah. I've had a couple of speeding tickets in the past and, and, you know, even though you may get the ticket reduced by, by, you know, reducing it to the minimum amount where you're not paying as much money, there's still a disappointment in yourself that you allowed yourself to, to get fined or you allowed yourself to, to get caught. And as stated before, just the, the worry as to how this would affect my insurance, that in itself mm-hmm. was enough of a deterrent yeah. for me to say that, geez, I got to be more careful out there. Yeah. And I, I have been careful. Like, as I said, I, I got a speeding ticket about two years ago. And ever since then, yeah, that, that stuck in my mind. In so it was that, enough of a punitive yeah, the was, fine plus the worry about insurance and and other things was enough of a it was punitive enough to to make you think twice yeah exactly kids birthday parties i was just looking at my note from you from earlier about kids birthday parties you wanted to talk about this you said what are some of your best memories of some of the birthday parties that you attended how have kids birthdays changed over the years uh, back in our day, it would have been unheard of for a parent to spend $500 on a kid's party. Why is there now an expectation that they have to be this big an ordeal? Yeah, I thought this was a interesting topic because I think as parents, we can all relate. We've all been in that situation where we're trying to organize a kid's birthday party or trying to figure out, okay, geez, what do, what do we do for this kid's birthday party? With with COVID, I guess it's been a little bit easier because now you don't have to invite people. <laughs> yeah, you save a little bit of money, so maybe there is some incentive there. But yeah, in all seriousness, where I was going with this is that you know when I think back to my own childhood, I had some. I have good memories of some of the birthday parties that I've had, and my parents never spent a ton of money. To me, some some of the best memories of, of some of my birthday parties when I would have, you know, I guess three or four close friends over and we'd order up for pizza. Um, 
I had a pool in my backyard, so that certainly helps in terms of entertaining your friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically, we'd finish off by going to see a movie. And it's something that's pretty simple and straightforward. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It's just for, you know, four or five kids to, to go to the, the movies. Um, but I'm thinking about kids these days, and, and we're all guilty of it, of, of you know organizing the kids' birthday parties, and then several hundred dollars later, it's like, wow, I spent more money than what I had intended or what I wanted to spend. But, you know, kids' birthday parties now, it's almost like an industry in itself mm-hmm. where to, to organize a kid's birthday party for anything less than $300 is pretty tough. And, you know, with my son, we've had some some good birthday parties for him, but we haven't gone overboard. We haven't done we've never done anything extravagant you know he's always had let's say less than maybe 10 10 friends which i i don't think is a lot but yeah it's it's hard to walk away with spending any any less than you know three four hundred dollars and really the sky's the limit because for some of the places that my son has gone to he's been invited to as some of his his other friends have parents have have paid for some of these places are got to be at least six, seven, eight hundred dollars for a kid's birthday party. Yeah. I'm thinking, wow, when and how did it ever get to this point? You know, and you're not even inviting the whole class. Like, there's certain kids. Yeah, the birthday old days parties, as kids, the whole class came. Like yeah, twenty-five and, kids would come over to your house, and I never did that. I never had the entire class over. Oh, you I were. Just, um, I just selected, you know, f- so four you or five excluded of my some friends. kids. Yes, I'm an excluder. <laughs> But no, I think it's... Did you go to Paul's birthday party? No, I wasn't invited. Yeah. You know how many kids are maybe as adults right now traumatized by the fact that you didn't invite them to your birthday party? Well, some of our listeners might be some of those people that were not invited to my birthday party. Yeah, well, they won't be listening anymore. Yeah, if only they knew that they were going to the birthday party of a famous uh, future podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, in all seriousness, you know, the the whole idea, you know, do you invite the whole class versus just kind of selecting a small group? I was never into that where I got to invite the entire class where you get 30 people over to your house. First of all, my parents would never have allowed that to begin with, but I didn't really want it anyway. Um, But yeah, even now, even if you did invite the whole class, that would cost even more money. So I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are. You have two kids. What have what have you done? Yeah, I think we did a couple of like I don't even know what you call them. They're they're well one one time we did some sort of a martial arts thing, and uh, I honestly I don't remember how much it cost, but it wasn't a large group. It was probably seven or eight kids. Um, I would say if I think back to my childhood, some of the best birthday parties I attended. Uh, one time we went go-karting, one of the parties we did, and I would, the the kid, I guess, wanted to do that, and we went go-karting, and I would say that's probably similar to what you would call extravagant today, like to take 10 or 20 kids to go-karting today would probably cost at least $1,000, um, but that was a fun, fun memory. Um, we had one party we went to, my the father of the kid was a high school gym teacher and we went over to the school gym that he taught at on a Saturday and he had got the gym made available. So we played floor hockey and basketball and that was actually a really, a really fun party. 
I do remember, I think most of the, <clears throat> most of the parties that we had or I had were the whole class came over 25 kids. It was a backyard kind of thing. And I, and yeah, pizza, oh, going to pizzerias, like, um, wasn't even that pizza place. Um, f- well, there was Frank Vatier's, but there was another one, Mother's Pizza or something in Whitby. Uh, I think you're really dating yourselves on these. I'm going to Google search these pizza places. No, you won't find them. This is pre-Google. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so I I generally enjoyed the kids' birthday parties that we hosted or that, that I had as a kid. Now, as uh, honestly, I think $300 is really not that unreasonable when you figure like that's $30 a kid. Yeah, well, that that's the minimum. And, and we've done some interesting stuff from my son in that we took him to an Oshawa Generals game. We've done that. Um, and that, I think, was about $30 a kid. Mm-hmm. How many kids? Um, well, I think 10 kids. Yeah, so there you yeah. go. Um, but no, I, I yeah, I think $300, you'd be hard-pressed to find something for under 300 Well, then you got the food and you've got... Uh, well, I don't know. No, I don't think they gave you any food. Maybe like a cupcake or something like that. You mean you, you had these 10 kids sitting in a hockey game for three hours and you didn't give them any food? <laughs> well, there was like cupcakes and snacks and stuff like that. But no, it wasn't like you weren't feeding them dinner. That reminds me of yeah. when I used to go to Blue Jay games with my dad versus someone else's dad. I remember it was so painful when I went with this one dad who refused to buy anything from the concession stand to like the fifth inning. <laughs> and I would just squirm in my seat, like, yeah. like thinking, oh my God, please, do I have to, I have to wait to the fifth inning to get something? Yeah. <laughs> Hated that. But yeah, like kids' birthday parties now, as I said, it's, it's you know, $300 is considered cheap. Um Yes. Yeah, I, I'm sure that most people probably can spend up to a thousand dollars on a kid's birthday party. Absolutely, and especially when they have a couple of kids. A thousand dollars a pop on a kid's birthday party. Yeah, a jumping you know, castle. Uh, and, and why? Why has it become that excessive? Why has it become such a, a big deal to have this big extravagant birthday party? And uh, the last couple of years, and, and granted, it's kind of hard to kind of determine that with with COVID, the the last year and a half. But you know, our should we be kind of trying to downscale things like instead of having, you know, 10 kids or whatever, like just have three or four of his closest friends and, and find something that maybe doesn't cost as much, you know, should we be kind of pushing back and saying, yeah, this is ridiculous that so much money is being spent on kids' birthday parties. Cause you're right. It's, it's, it has become a big deal. It has become an industry in itself. Yeah. Well, the the demand has been there, which is why yeah, there's an industry I, for it. People are paying it's like for weddings, it. right? But you think back, you know, what, 30, you, 30 years ago, our parents would and, and our parents would never have paid that kind of money. And maybe there's well, we live perhaps in perhaps more better disposable times. income. Yeah. More, more yeah, two-parent income, income families yeah. and So, I I'm just struggling to understand why why you have an issue with this. Just because I think that it's it does, there can be signs of, of pure extravagance. I think spending $1,000 on a kid's birthday party is ridiculous. I, I really do. I'd rather spend What are you money. worried about? If someone spends $1,000, why does that affect you? No, it's something, well, something that I would never do. I would, I would rather spend that money on a gift than 
having this big extravagant birthday party where it's just a popularity you. contest. But hey, I guess some people want experiences, not yeah, material so. items. If, if you want to spend a thousand bucks on a birthday party, then it's your money. You Why does this it. make you angry? I'm. It's just an observation. That's all. Isn't? I wouldn't say it makes me angry. It's just not something that I would do because I never had the big birthday party there as a is. kid, and, and I never it. missed out. I don't feel all like right. I missed out. I, mm-hmm. I have very nice memories of past birthday parties. So I just think it's a bit unnecessary to spend several hundreds hundreds of dollars on kids birthday parties all right what's uh you have a news story weird news story jesus fucking bees you have a weird news story i'll bleep that out uh why don't you tell us a little bit about this it sounds like from the when we had the pre-chat that it's somewhat related to uh, the story or the theme of it is similar to the story we shared in our last episode so why don't you tell us about that and don't play with the speaker wire <laughs> i it, i mean it yes all right <laughs> sorry about that yes go ahead i'm the one who edits this thing so <laughs> right. the less technical fumbling around you do the better and easier it is for me so sorry go ahead weird news story okay tell that to the bees actually it's wasps you should are they wa- yeah, yeah. Well, wasp bees are friendly wasps are are evil um <laughs> Yeah, so the reason I wanted to bring up this weird news story is because the the theme of empty beer cans comes into play. Last week, we well, the last episode, we talked about the guy with all the empty beer cans in the backseat of his car. So the, the headline here is, Hellish Hoarder Takes Off, Leaves Behind Thousands of Beer Cans, Rotting Food, Lots of Poop. A lot of stuff to absorb in that headline. Jesus. And we will include the photos here on, on the show notes. Again, you have to see it to believe it. It's, uh, it really emphasizes the story when you can see the actual photos and realize what a, a horrible situation this is. Um, so, yeah, this is a reputable news store, source. This is uh, published in the Toronto Sun and the British Daily Mail. Um, this story actually occurred why, in, why in you, England, not Japan. But why do you call those reputable news sources? Well, because it's a mainstream news source. It's not like it's some weird blog. Fledgling. That, fledgling blog that you're not sure if it's true or not. The North Ontario Times. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. So, yeah, just to explain what this is all about. A tenant from hell left behind thousands of beer cans, rotten food, and a toilet overflowing with poop before taking off. So, as, as mentioned, this was in England. Um, so yeah, this, this, um, individual had a, a tenant within, who's renting a house and, um, when he was able to evict this particular tenant, um, he shared photos of the horrific conditions that this house was left in. Now, was that part of the reason why he wanted this guy out or was he just, well, I guess he hadn't paid rent in quite some time okay. yeah. and plus i'm sure that the landlord was aware of of the disgusting nature of, of the house i don't think he realized it was this bad um maybe but it yeah, wasn't so, but this guy decided to sock it to him yeah so uh w- within this article there is photos here of a living room piled with enough beer cans to hide an extra sofa <laughs> to the blanket of spider webs covering said cans so there's estimated to be approximately 8,000 empty beer cans. <laughs> wow. He clearly didn't use the bin at all because the About kitchen was... About a quarter was, of which you could 
jam into a Toyota Corolla. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you didn't... So, yeah, the kitchen was full of food waste. Living room was half-eaten kebabs and moldy loaves of bread all over the floor. Uh, garbage bags full of cigarette butts. Half-eaten kebabs. Uh, the floor wasn't visible due to the thousands of beer cans. So the bathroom, this is where it gets a bit gross. The toilet was piled high with toilet paper and feces. Uh, it looks like he had never flushed the toilet. So there's a carefully piled up four-foot display of poop-stained toilet paper in the corner of oh, the bathroom. Terrible. Wow, I think that pretty much says it all. So yeah, there was... Um, in order to clean this house, they needed 10 bottles of bleach and 100, yeah, 100 industrial-sized garbage bags to get the house to any semblance of normal. It says a digger was also needed to crush the mess so it could all fit into the dumpster. <laughs> so about after 30 hours uh, across three days, he managed to clean out the property. God. So the tenant may have had a depression or he may have had a drinking problem based on the amount of cans. Yeah, that could be a clue. What do you mm. think? Yeah. So it cost 12,000 pounds uh, in terms of, of cost to, to clean to, it up, to, to clean this up. Hmm. So anyway, yeah, I just thought this was interesting. And as I said, well, we'll show the photos here on the, on the show notes, but yeah, I just thought that caught my eye just while we were on the topic of, of uh, excessive amounts of empty beer cans. Yeah. It makes the guy with the Toyota Corolla look just like a, a nice guy. Yeah. So would that be your worst job? Because you, you mentioned before you hate nothing more than having to deal with empty beer cans. What if you were assigned to uh, to be the yeah that the, would be. the guy that cleans up the beer cans? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd be more concerned about the poop in the toilet. Or yeah. that, that's <laughs> just you'd have to go in there with hazmat suits. Um, and if you ever watch those hoarders shows, I have yeah. Oh, they're just terrible. Yeah. And there's, I mean, they get to the point where it's like toxic, like different animals that have dump their feces in places and anyway this is just disgusting um so the moral of the story here is that um yeah return your beer cans okay quit hoarding them in the backs of cars and in people's houses so clark you've told me that you are launching a new podcast i am so please am. do tell yeah so i am launching a podcast it's been about a a new podcast been about a year in the making now uh, most of that is just it's been sitting on a back burner but I, I, uh, I don't know if I've shared on this podcast before that I have been training to become a, a career or an executive coach. And the podcast that I am going to be putting out will be a, it's, it's called The Coach's Compass. And it's a podcast designed to help new and experienced coaches learn from seasoned veterans of the coaching industry. So it's an interview style format where I'm going to bring on various experienced coaches and ask them about, you know, the ins and outs of marketing and how they get clients, how they serve, how they make money as coaches, how they pick their niche, the, the best advice, the worst advice they've got as coaches. And so that I can learn from it and hopefully others will also be able to learn from it because I found there's a, there was a shortage out there of podcasts that addressed this topic. For those that were studying to become coaches, how could they learn from a podcast how to do that? So that's that's my podcast and it should be coming out uh, in, the, in about a week or so. It, it, sh it should be out. That sounds great. 
So this is a brand new, as you said, what's it called? The Coach's... The Coach's Compass. Coach's Compass. So this is com- something completely separate from we've talked about this. Yep. And But yeah. I'm going to use all my experience as, from this podcast and uh, use it on my, my new podcast. It'll be different because it's an interview style format, which I like a lot. Going back to my, you know, dreams of being a, a newsman, um, this will be a chance to tickle that that skill set. Absolutely. Yeah. And admittedly, I don't know a lot about coaching. So yeah, I've, I would very much be interested in listening to this podcast to educate myself as to how the process works and, and learn something about it. Well, that's, that's actually something I hadn't even thought about is that if you've never had a coach before, listening to this podcast might give you a sense of what being coached could do for you as far as helping you in your career or your personal life. So I didn't even think of that, that the, the another benefit of this would be for those that are, want to have thought about getting coached, some of the things that coaching can, can bring. Okay, well, next week I'm on vacation, so we probably are going to have a little bit of a, a gap between this episode and the next, but uh, covered a lot of stuff here, and um, yeah, until next time. Yeah, I'm on vacation as well. So, Next week? Yes. Yep. And we're not going to the same place? No, no. I'm, uh, my wife and I were going to uh, Quebec City for a few days. You're going back? No, weren't no, you no, there we, already? No, we, we haven't been to Quebec City. You we were there were, two weeks ago. No, no, we, we were going to go, but we didn't end up going. You didn't we tell me to, that? to Montebello, Quebec. Um, what are you going back or, to Quebec for? No, this is Quebec City. It's a completely it's different still place. still Quebec. 